Welcome. You're listening to a podcast of Interhentis, the McGill Journal of International Law and Legal Pluralism. For more content or to join the conversation, go to interhentis.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-G-E-N-T-E-S dot com. Thanks for being with us. Professor Jean d'Aspremont, Chair of Public International Law at the University of Manchester and Director of the Manchester International Law Centre, presented his forthcoming book on the mysticism of international legal argumentation in a lecture here at McGill on March 30th. We managed to catch him for a few questions prior to his presentation. Welcome, Professor d'Aspremont. When you talk about mysticism in the context of international law, what exactly do you mean? Well, the book makes the following point that international law is, an international legal argumentation in general, uh, is built on some packages of modes of legal reasoning. The first component of international argumentation uh, is made of gospels, packages of modes of legal argumentation. Uh, the second component is made of authoritative texts, canonical texts. The point is that gospels, on the one hand, canonical text on the other, are the two main components uh, of international legal argu argumentations. They are what makes international legal argumentation possible. You need doctrines, gospels, and you need authoritative texts. You must create a genealogical link between the doctrines, the gospels, and the canonical text. You must make all the actors concerned believe that actually the gospels come from the canonical text. So you must create the illusion that the modes of legal reasoning we use are actually derived from the canonical text. Take the doctrine on statehood. This is a gospel, statehood. The mainstream version of that doctrine tells us that to be a state, you need to fulfill three or four elements. And we are told that this doctrine, which tells us how to argue about statehood, comes from either the Montevideo Convention on uh, the Rights and Duties of States of 1933 or the customary equivalent. That's the genealogical link. The fact that we derive our doctrine of statehood from this 1933 convention. Well, the point is that in 1933, when they drafted the Montevideo Convention on Rights and Duties of States, which of course was the result of a long process, the point was not to create a universal doctrine of statehood. Actually, it's a convention against intervention. It's not a convention on statehood. However, we have subsequently created the idea that this traditional doctrine of statehood comes from the 1933 Montevideo Convention on the Rights and Duties of States. And that's what I mean by a genealogical link. Originally, I thought that all these phenomenon was actually mystical, that we had to create a mystic environment to make international legal argumentations possible. More recently, I have moved away from the idea of mysticism, and I think it's just better to speak in terms of the genealogical structure of international legal argumentation. So you speak about the Gospels and the canonical texts of international law. If we can push this religious analogy further, who would be the clergy of international law, and where would be the temples? I'm, I'm using this 
theological analogy as a descriptive tool. But that falls short of claiming that international law and international legal argumentation is a, a theological activity. I mean, I, I do believe that there is this theological dimension in what we're doing when we argue about international law. And, and I'm very amenable to, for instance, what Pierre Schlag said about law being the continuation of God by other means. However, my claim falls short of making such a contention. In the same vein, I'm not saying anything about the possible theological foundations of international law. Other colleagues I engage in such inquiries, like for instance Martin Koskiniemi, this is not something I'm doing. I do believe that theologians in the past have put forward structures of thoughts which have informed the way we, we think about international law, but, but that's not something I'm looking at. I return to, to your question, which is, what about the clergy? What, what about the temples? Well, my theological framework, my descriptive framework, is meant to show that the design of the, the, the main doctrines of international argumentation, opinion juris, practice, breach, if you speak about uh, responsibility, effectiveness, if you speak about statehood, well, they're not the result of a lawmaking process strictly speaking. They're not the result of state-based lawmaking processes. No, they are the result of a multitude of interventions by a multitude of actors, legal advisors, scholars, NGOs, uh, judges, obviously, uh, domestic judges, international judges, and so on and so on. If the clergy is such a wide and heterogeneous community, well, the temples are, are plenty. Courts, universities, ministries for foreign affairs, and so on and so on. These are all the fora where these interventions take place, and so which cannot be restricted to the, the usual sites of power according to a traditional lawmaking approach. Um, so if I understand your comment correctly, the elements of mysticism would persist in the interactions between all of these actors. It wouldn't be a framework that only applies to states. That, that's right, and that's a correct reading of the consequences of, of, of my argument. I do believe that we need to move beyond these traditional state-based or state-centric law-making frameworks. The, the making of the structures of, of international legal argumentation does not boil down to the making of legal rules. No, it's about the making and the designs of modes of legal reasoning. As I've said, this design is the result of an intervention of a wide variety of actors, which cannot be reduced to, to state. Actually, the state affiliation of these actors is almost irrelevant. And that's one of the aims of this project, to invite us to move beyond this, this traditional framework to look at international law from a non-rule-based or non-state-based vantage point. On a more personal note, what led you to become interested in this subject? And was there a singular moment of epiphany, or did you come to this area in a more gradual way? Well, this book draws on many years of reflection. Actually, it originates in a frustration which I have experienced for a very long time. And the frustration comes from this contention made by 99% of my colleagues that these main doctrines are actually derived from some key authoritative text. And I have always found that these references we feel compelled to make are rather artificial. And it is this finding that, that deriving the modes of legal reasoning from a formal text is artificial 
that led me to write this book. And you've mentioned that you use the mysticism or genealogy of international legal argumentation as a descriptive tool, but would you also say that it's something we should be concerned about, the way we construe legal argumentations from the text to the Gospels? Or do you think it's possible to reduce or eliminate it? And would that be a worthy goal? So I try to shed light on this genealogical link between the Gospels and the canonical text. Having said this, I'm not claiming that international legal arguments made on the basis of this genealogical structure are invalid or corrupt. My claim is that actually this is necessary for legal argumentation to be possible. In other words, I'm saying that it probably cannot be otherwise, that we need this genealogy, fabricated genealogy, for legal argumentations to be possible. Because if we were to argue and make a claim on responsibility, and each time we would have to justify our choices of modes of legal reasoning about responsibility, in the end it would be a, a cacophony and we wouldn't be able to make claims in international law. I'm not saying this is good, I'm not saying this is bad, I'm just saying this is how international argumentation becomes possible. And do you think this is strictly relevant to international law? Or are there lessons here that can be applied to the law more generally? Is there an inherent mysticism in the practice of law? Mm -hmm. I do believe that this is something we probably witness in other areas. If, for instance, I look at areas like European law, I tend to see some similar dynamics and some similar genealogical structure. The canonical text may not necessarily be the same, yet I am inclined to believe that this genealogical structure is something we find in any area of law. This being said, I'm quite reluctant to generalize my claim, and, and that's why I focus exclusively on international law. And now that you're working on the last stage of your book, is it too early to talk about the next stage of your research? Do you plan to expand on the themes you covered here, or do you want to explore some other area of international law? I'm now entering the final stage of, of this project. I'm speaking here with you today, and I'm here at, at my guild to have the argument tested, and thereafter I will, I will finalize it. Obviously, it might provoke some unease among colleagues, and I will need to further clarify a few points to extrapolate the arguments in, in other areas, so the project will not end with the publication of the book. Uh, I do think that the book will need to be supplemented by a few other case studies, and that's something I would be happy to do after this book, to continue the research and apply this framework to other doctrines of international law. But then, obviously, that will not exhaust everything. And I do think that the very idea of an intervention by certain actors to design the modes of, of legal reasoning used by international law will require more attention. Whether I'm the right scholar to do that, I don't know. And I may decide to leave it to others to further explore each of these interventions that shape the modes of legal reasoning used by international lawyers. Intergentis will soon release its inaugural issue, which explores the concept of people's resistance in international law. Based on your research, do you think that the international legal system can be or should be a tool of resistance? This is obviously a fascinating issue. Trying to actually apply my descriptive framework to the idea of resistance, I do think that 
in this struggle between different actors to impose modes of legal reasoning on others, there is necessarily an element of resistance. Because somehow when you intervene to impose certain modes of legal reasoning, you engage in something which is very hegemonic. Other actors will resist. So yes, I do think there is a lot to say about resistance. But the, the way I construe that idea is resistance among all these actors engaged in the making of the way we argue responsibility, the making of the way we argue about sources, and so on and so on. There is an act of resistance. And actually, that's something scholars experience every day. But not only scholars, legal advisors, judges, they all try to resist some argumentative moves made by others all the time, every day, at any moment. Thank you very much, Professor Laspromont, for taking the time to meet with us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Professor Jean d'Espremont, Chair of Public International Law at the University of Manchester and Director of the Manchester International Law Centre, about his forthcoming book on the mysticism of international legal argumentation. To listen to the full lecture, visit our website at interhentes.com. I-N-T-E-R-G-E-N-T-E-S dot com where you can also find articles and editorials, or share your own thoughts. This has been a podcast of Interhentis, the McGill Journal of International Law and Legal Pluralism. Thanks for listening.